You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 256 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are doing something special. I will not have one guest or two guests, but I will have three guests. And those guests are P.D. Newman, Dick Kahn and R.N. Woot. We are going to mainly discuss DMT, the occult, Egyptian mythology, psychedelics, alchemy and Freemasonry, as well as a bunch of other topics. Peter Newman is a Freemason and the author of the book Alchemically Stone, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry. He has previously appeared in episode 164. Dick Kahn is the author of the books DMT and My Occult Mind, part 1 and 2. And he has previously appeared in episode 145. And finally, R.N. Woot is the author of The Spirit in the Sky, Ancient Cosmological Gods and Where in the World We Find Them. He previously appeared in episode 161. So, let's not waste any more time. Let the Tetralogue, which is a debate or conversation between four people, let the Tetralogue begin. So thanks everyone for being on the podcast. Um, before we start, I, I'm thinking the best thing to do is for each of you to introduce yourself. So uh, why not start with uh, the person who is furthest away from the rest of us, P.D. Newman. Oh, sure. Um, so uh, I'm a, a, an author. Uh, I have a book out, Alchemically Stone, The Psychedelic Secret of Freemasonry, which focuses on the use of uh, DMT in an entheogenic context among a, a certain group of alchemical Freemasons in the 18th century, um, which leads me to, uh, I, I am a Freemason, uh, which is how I encountered a lot of this, uh, encountered and conducted a lot of this research. And uh, I live in the United States. Uh, in the in the south, right, currently in Mississippi, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, yeah, I've just had a ever since my teens been a, a student of entheogenic plants and um, mysticism in general, and yeah, so I got I, I guess I earned it natural. Thank you, and and then we have um, Dick Kahn. Can you talk a bit about who you are? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, I'm Dick Khan. I'm the author of DMT and My Occult Mind. That's um, two volumes. Uh, just released the second volume. I'm an unsanctioned DMT researcher. So I guess I'm 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 trying to do what Rick Strassman did in his studies with the research volunteers. But I don't have any government approval. And uh, you know, I'm I'm from the north of England. I'm a, I'm a working class boy. I'm a family man, and uh, man, this this has been and is just a really wild ride for me. I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, and uh, yeah, that's it. And then we have, finally, Aaron Woot. Hello again, Alex. It's been a long time. How are you? <laughs> um, I am an author as well. Um, first book, Devolution Cycle. Um, but yeah, my, my most up-to-date piece is um, The Spirit of the Sky, Ancient Cosmological Gods and Where in the World We Find Them, 
which basically um, puts into a nutshell, um, I guess, a 21st, 20, excuse me, a 21st century translation of the esoteric adage, as above, so below, which is tied to the Osiris mythology and, um, yeah, the, the mysterious compound that is all things DMZ. Can you, uh, if somebody didn't hear our episode long ago, can you uh, remind people about the DMT that you've seen in the sky? Sure. Um, I'll try and keep this as um, as short as I can as well, because again, that was a whole a whole episode. Um, but yeah, that I've been studying um, ancient um, mythologies and cosmologies for the best part of um, a couple of decades. Um, but it wasn't until I actually had a excuse me an unfortunate accident um, in the South American jungle um, that I actually found time to actually composed the literature that I'd actually been studying for for such a long time and everything kind of happened with regard to synchronicities I'd never heard of um, the yeah the the compound DMT um, it was something that was completely unfamiliar to me um, until I until I come across the, the the spirit molecule documentary by Dr. Rick Strassman who the Khan just mentioned just just now um, and yeah <laughs> with regards to synchronicities it was i was studying the ancient egyptian um assyrian mythology um which sounded um to put into layman's terms almost like a a comic book version of uh, um of ideals almost like the the biblical context um of i guess the good book in christianity today where we have flying horses and and, and the like which quite it's a little bit beyond belief to kind of <laughs> grab a hold of those things and say, yeah, that's that that's all real, you know. Um, but yeah, the mythology with regards to um, Osiris, um, it, yeah, it, it still beggars belief that the, I guess, the Egypt, Egyptological ideal is still pushing the, um, yeah, the mainstream runaway train with regards to gods being rescued from inside trees and thus becoming um constellations in the night sky it, it really didn't make too much sense unless we looked at it through i guess a more scientifically viable lens so what i <laughs> what, I, what I basically discovered was that the, the 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 2d molecular structure of dmt which osiris is likened to within i guess the the confines of all things acacia throughout ancient egyptian mythology <laughs> Um, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me why this um, this god of resurrection that had been um, duly disposed of by uh, I guess a wicked brother <coughs> um, and thus became a, a constellation in the night sky but it was only when I looked into the molecular structure of the acacia variety um, to which he's yeah, his mythology is all based around that we actually find the 2D um, molecular structure of DMT, which is strikingly reminiscent of the constellation of Orion um, in the night sky. So, Peter Newman, as a Freemason, uh, I'm sure you've encountered a lot of Egyptian symbolism. I mean, you have the Egyptian rite and maybe uh, they talk about Osiris. Can you talk a bit about uh, the mainstream Freemasonic view of Egypt and then your own? Freemasonry, Freemasonry is basically a, a, 
it you it's a system that employs uh, symbolism and allegory to impart certain truths pertaining to uh, metaphysical concepts in some cases but w- one of the ways that this is imparted um, in the master mason degree for example is a uh, what's called the Hiramic legend. It's a, it's an allegory based around a figure uh, named Hiram Abith, who many scholars, both Masonic and not, have been want to tie to the figure of, uh, of Osiris um, and his uh, death and resurrection. Um, and whether or not those ties are... are Actual is beside the point. The fact is that it was interpreted in those ways, which led um, Freemasons after that fact to sort of recast these dramas and symbols in an Egyptian context. And that's where you get Cagliostro's Egyptian rite of Freemasonry. And later you get what's called um, uh, the rite of Memphis, uh, which was combined with the rite of Mizraim and was later... um, sort of reduced, distilled into the ancient and primitive rite of Memphis and Mizraim. So, you know, most of the Egyptian ties are are sort of attached to um, the Masonic uh, mansion itself. But there's reason for it. Uh, One of those main reasons is the presence of the acacia in the Master Mason degree, which in the earliest days wasn't there. In the earliest days of that ritual, it only mentions a sprig of cassia and in the ritual it's placed over the grave of this person of Hiram. Um, so the sprig of cassia later a sprig of acacia is placed on top of this grave as a marker. Well, of course in the Egyptian religion, uh, as RN brought up a moment ago, our, uh, Osiris was said to have resided literally resided within that tree. His brother uh, encased him in it. Um, so the deity was said to be inside the acacia tree. And um, so in the earliest days of Freemasonry, there's a sprig of cassia that shows up uh, in the ritual. But in and around the time that this man named John Theophilus de Sagulier was made the third Grand Master of the Premier Grand Lodge in London, um, this cassia became acacia in virtually every Masonic lodge in Europe. And um, no one really knows why he made this change, um, but I think I know why now. But if you fast forward, you know, about 40 years from, from him making this change, you have actual people like Cagliostro, Egyptian right, uh, popping up and clearly using the Ikechia in an entheogenic alchemical context where it's referred to as... Uh, the primal matter uh, of alchemy. And in alchemy, the, the, in ancient alchemy, the, the goal was to discover the, the philosopher's stone. And this was discovered or produced from something called the primal matter, the prima materia. And the prima materia was never named in any alchemical texts. Even the ones that purport to name it, like Richter's um, True and Perfect Preparation, they never really name it. It's always glossed over or omitted or uh, bare deeper. Uh, and so Cagliostro was really one of the first alchemists to come out and say, well, this is what the primal matter is. It's acacia. And from it, you produce a stone, um, the philosopher's stone, he said. And then 
this is then dissolved into a, a red liqueur, which is offered to the candidate who is being initiated to drink. And it specifically says it's doing this so that it may raise their spirit in order to understand uh, what's about to happen to them in the ritual. Um, so that, that, you know, the, the ties to Egypt and Freemasonry, uh, as far as it being sort of uh, an extension of or splinter from the Osiris trauma of ancient Egypt, there's no, there's no documentable um, continuity there. But in spirit, as far as uh, the real function of the acacia in the Egyptian religion, its actual function in Freemasonry, uh, those two things are very much identical. Um, so there, there is a continuity, a conceptual continuity, if not a linear one. So, Dick Kahn, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but your research in regards to DMT is not so much a scholarly or historical perspective as we've just heard from uh, these two other um, others. Um, you've more been focused on the actual direct experience doing many ceremonies, but has the uh, historical or the symbolic aspects of DMT uh, influenced you over over the years in your own research? Well, uh, let me just quickly pay tribute to Rick and PD's certainly scholastic work. It, it's beautiful to hear both uh, represent their work so eloquently. Um, I mean, one of the reasons I chose the title DMT and My Occult Mind, I wanted occult in the title. I know that in some quarters or, or mainstream, it's still very much a a taboo word, but essentially it means hidden. And it was very important for me to include that in the title because I strongly suspect that uh, an occult interpretation of the, the DMT experience will prove to be the most uh, accurate, the most uh, valid, the most worthwhile. And what I mean by that is from my, yes, you're right, practical experiences in, in mainly smoking pre-based DMT, I, I, after pursuing many, you know, experiences, it, it became apparent to me that, yeah, I, I was really interacting with um, one of a class of untold number um, powerful spirits from hidden nature, and they would impose upon me powerfully, uh, bizarrely, uh, you know, life-changing experiences, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I think including the occult, including occult in the title was, uh, yeah, I think I think that was something that I felt was really important. I think where Dick just left off as well, I think it's quite important with regards to the the literature that he's just released that I've only just finished reading. Which uh, again, I tip my hat to you, Dick. Um, I think that there's a great number of excerpts that you can take directly from Dick's first-hand experience that marry up with what PD is actually talking about with set projection of um, one spirit. PD, you have any thoughts? Well, I did wonder when you went to. Dick, I wondered, um, uh, since Aaron and I both uh, kind of cited uh, an Egyptian <clears throat> background here, I wondered if Dick, in any of his experiences, I know I have in mind many of them, encountered uh, particularly Egyptian motifs in your, uh, in your trips. No, I, I haven't. I, I recall interacting with one particular individual on DMT Nexus when I first started researching and it seemed all his 
breakthrough trips were thematic with Egyptian motifs, hieroglyphs, etc. But no, I haven't. And, uh, you know, I mean, I have read quite a bit about, you know, Egypt, uh, ancient history. But no, I, I, it's not something that's featured in my experiences. But yeah, I, I mean, DMT without any interaction with powerful entities from hidden nature, it, it just it's such a powerful amplifier, expander of your own psycho-spiritual constitution. So without any entity interaction, uh, even a small dose of DMT inhaled, it will powerfully amplify bubble-like your psycho-spiritual constitution and thereby significantly change one's setting. But it's interesting to hear PD refer to raising one's spirit from those those old text, those Renaissance Freemasons, how they expressed it. It's very interesting. I don't think DMT is completely on its own. I think everybody who uses it uh, injects some of their own interests and things they've experienced into it. Uh, But that's on the surface level. Of course, the deeper you go, you enter this realm where nothing that comes from you, it seems, uh, is in the experience. But I remember one time I... I've told the story before, I had uh, smoked DMT in my toilet because it was too cold to go outside and so I had to be in there and the whole theme was a toilet uh, world where all these DMT creatures were having mops and cleaning, jumping out of the toilet and that was, I think I talked about this with Dickon in the episode I did with him and he mentioned something similar he'd experienced but i think that's that must be like the surface level but if you go beyond that because that that wasn't a very intense trip for me but it, on the ones where i've had a very intense trip uh, i could not recognize anything from my own interests or things like that well i think what we're really talking about is the difference between freud's personal unconscious and young's uh, collective unconscious, which is peopled with all the archetypes, or what even Freud hinted at earlier when he called them archaic forms, um, but things that have no relation to your own personal experience at all. Once I know exactly what you mean. Once you get beyond that strata, and you encounter that stuff in that same language and in magical literature where they'll talk about the, the lower and the higher astral, you know, the lower astral they'll see is, say is peopled with mm-hmm. these things that uh, sort of activate your own clutter, your own debris that's left behind from, uh, from traumas and things, but you get beyond that and it's, you know, what they call the, the realm of spirits and planetary hierarchies or whatnot. So PD, have you uh, been trying to get the, Freemasons, uh, where you live, to have a sort of DMT ritual in the lodge. Is that even possible? Because it would be a nice set and setting. Oh, no. I th- I think um, I think modern Freemasons, uh, I don't think, you know, any... I'm not certain that that's uh, possible at all. Not even just the logistics of it. Just the idea of a bunch of, of Masons tripping in modern day... Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in or around a group of Freemasons, but the meetings are very, um, you know, lots of suits, very uh, stiff. You know, it can get loose, especially at the table lodges, but the ritual is very um, solemn. You know, it's quiet. Uh, It would be incredibly strange today. I don't think it would have been then because they'd have interpreted these experiences in light of the book of John or Ezekiel or Daniel 
you know, they'd have saw themselves as visionaries and entering that territory. But um, so no, I haven't urged that to happen. But that being said, um, you know, I do hear from Freemasons all over the world that are doing this kind of in an unofficial capacity and attempt to rediscover how this might have looked or felt um, when used in such a context. And, uh, you know, that's all that's none of that's in an official capacity. So any thoughts from the other two? Uh, it's interesting to hear what a traditional Freemasonic uh, meeting is like uh, with suits and quite somber and sober. Um, I'm not a Mason myself, but now that was interesting. But I think it would be even more interesting if uh, the ayahuasca could be passed around in, in that ceremony. That would be really interesting. I'm, I'm sure PD would agree. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to um, psychedelics and the psychedelic renaissance we're in now, uh, it's uh, becoming more and more mainstream, but I still think it's very underground it only might seem mainstream because all the people who are in the underground can easily connect with the internet. Any thoughts? I would agree with that. I mean, when I go to work, when I'm at work, when I'm in London, it, it just feels that what I'm doing and, and this, you're right, this psychedelic renaissance is still very fledgling, um, doesn't feel mainstream at all. But then when I'm on social media and I'm seeing the um, the posts, the articles, the books, etc., etc., and, and items on TV or Netflix or whatever, then you can see, yeah, it, it does feel like it's becoming more and more mainstream. But I can't work out whether that's just because I'm, I'm looking at that stuff specifically or whether there is it genuinely is becoming more widespread than it appears to do when I'm outside on the street. How do you feel, Aaron Wood? I think it's still extremely highly um, stigmatized, to be fair. Um, and I can't see that. I'd like to see it changing rapidly. But with how the UK seems to be dragging its knuckles with regards to the, the cannabis industry and everything that's going on in, um, in North America at the moment. Um, yeah, I think the... I think I think we're stuck in stuck in the past in more ways than one, um, and that really needs a, a shift in mindset, um, which is where I think Dick's work comes in. Um, it's extremely prevalent with regards to, I guess, with, you know, with regards to the failed um, psychedelic revolution of the late '60s and '70s. But I think where this has got a little bit more um, potential to actually keep the proverbial ball rolling is the the wonder of the internet now is that we're not all categorized and pigeonholed as um, as crazies as um, yeah just people looking for an easy trip or an escape from reality you know um, I think that it's going to be very hard um, it might take time but I think it's going to be extremely hard to to kind of quash or quell the um, yeah, the, 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 the psychedelic revolution, I guess. In regards to cannabis, uh, it's been a very common substance throughout all of humanity. But PD, is cannabis uh, seen in, uh, in the sources in, when you've been studying the Freemasonic history? Uh, not in Freemasonry itself. You don't see cannabis show up, but you do see... Um, for example, when the Shriners pop up with a guy named Al Rawson, uh, he was an initiate of several different Sufi orders, and the, the founders of the Shrine um, enlisted him to help write their 
uh, sort of Arabic uh, symbolic history and all the Arabic references in the degrees themselves and the rituals. And he was actually a, a huge hashish enthusiast. He turned Blavatsky on, I think. Uh, I don't. I, he either turned. I know he smoked with her or ate it with her, um, but I think he's the one that actually turned her on to hash. Um, so th there, it, it was definitely used there. And then you find um, in and around the formation of the Masonic Rosicrucian Order, which uh, is, is called SRIA, Sociatus Rosicruciana in Anglia. It's actually the organization that gave way to the uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in 1888, I think. Uh, but the the uh, the people who were involved with its founding, um, in and around that time, uh, a gentleman named uh, Frederick Hockley, who had uh, three very dedicated students: um, Kenneth R. H. McKenzie, um, Herbert Irwin, who was just a child; he was, I think, fifteen at the time, and then his father, Captain F. G. Irwin. <laughs> All of them, except Herbert, were. Freemasons and were involved in SRIA, and they were uh, mirror gazers. They were into crystal gazing, and what they would do is get loaded on uh, on hashish, opium. Uh, you know, if we're, if we're to believe uh, uh, Emma Hardinge Britton, who was suspected to have been Hockley's uh, seer when she was younger, um, nitrous oxide was used. Um, she even mentions, she says, the distillations from two or three acrid fungi, uh, which was pretty um, fascinating, considering the fact that I think at the time the only hallucinogenic mushroom known was the Amanita muscaria. So to say two or three is, uh, is pretty fascinating. Um, but they were using this stuff to such a degree. For example, Herbert was their personal seer. They would use him as a scryer to see visions in these mirrors, and he'd report them back, and they'd write them down in these journals. But Herbert actually died when he was 15 as an overdose um, from laudanum, and he was also using hashish at the time uh, for mirror gazing. So, yeah, these guys at this time, you know, but it was during the, during, you know, the uh, 19th century occult revival in and around, you know, this boom of spiritualism was happening so there was lots of attempt to communicate with spirits uh, whether they be you know disincarnate entities or dead dead people so uh, so yeah definitely um, definitely some hash and cannabis use if I don't remember incorrectly I think it was Paracelsus the famous alchemist who came up with laudanum or at least made it popular but in alchemy, you always talk about making the philosopher's stone and the, the, the stone can uh, do many wondrous things. But even before that, you had the Holy Grail and you had the Cup of Plenty. And um, you could say that all these things are some sort of psychedelic stone, perhaps. But one thing that speaks against it is that if you read alchemical recipes, uh, I mean... Um, Symbolically, I guess you could trace it to an extraction process or an ayahuasca brew process, but on the surface level, it also looks like it's not. What do you think, PD? When alchemy first came about, it was uh, 
like for example, if we look at uh, Zosimos of Panopolis, he he was a uh, a metallurgist for the priesthood. He would make these statues, and the secret that is literally back then was the secret of alchemy was how to dye these statues certain colors, because imbuing them with colors, each color correspondence colors had deity correspondences. So knowing how to imbue, imbue the statue with these particular hues um, was the secret knowledge of how to literally capture the deity within these statues. Uh, Shannon Grimes, Shannon Cooper Grimes, she recently published a, a really great book about this and Rubedo Press uh, that you can easily find. It's, it's only been out a few months. Really great, I recommend. But after this, so these texts begin to be... Um, interpreted in different ways and the myth of you know this stone all of this stuff arose sort of innocently but was then kind of interpreted in, in new lights um whenever these big grandiose philosophical doctrines uh, gathered around alchemy so you know in the old days it's a very practical system of dying metal but the texts are so cryptic that you know, uninitiates in this stuff get their hands on it, and they say, oh, well, we're transmuting. We're going from one state to another with no actual description of how. So it, it leaves it open to the, all these interpretations of not just how to do it, but how could that happen? So you end up with these grand car cosmologies of, you know, how one thing can become another thing. And, you know, all that stuff attached itself to alchemy later. So by the time it became a Western practice, um, it was very much a DIY process. Every every alchemist who got his hands on a text was pretty much working alone in his laboratory trying to make sense of this stuff. So where one alchemist might find one solution to the problems in these texts, another alchemist would find completely different solutions. And it's only in the case of uh, you know Cagliostro and Melissino and evidently De Sagulier that it, they took the acacia route, um, which, from you know, in my explorations, is the only model that satisfies all of the requirements set up for what Western alchemy should look like. But, but no, in the early days, plants weren't involved unless they were part of the dying process. So, Dickon, uh, whether it's alchemy or not, if somebody would watch you making all that DMT that you've made over the years, you would look like an alchemist. How do you, how does it feel when you're making it? Is it a, a ritual or just like a, a, you do it without thinking? Well, first of all, let me say, still after countless extractions, I still find it thoroughly enjoyable. I, I use a very simple STB extraction, but you know, you wake up the next morning and you, you check the freezer and your glass dish looks like a snow globe and it's just, it's euphoric. I, I just love that. I love the whole process. And I mean, to begin with, when I first started, I, I didn't have any intentions. I was, I was I was just doing it and enjoying doing it. But then people would start to say, you know, when, when you're doing this or when you're doing anything, you should have positive intentions. And I didn't really get that at the time, but... Yeah, since since my experiences, and even more so since experiencing ayahuasca, I think that's absolutely valid. Always your intentions in whatever you're doing, it, it, it's it's important. A very 
mysterious, very deep and, 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 and occult level. It, it, it changes the outcome of the entire experience, if not the process. So, uh, Aaron Wood, uh, you mentioned earlier that you suffered an injury, and uh, I, I only I can only imagine if you've uh, been doing psychedelics after that. But have they helped with the injury, maybe psychologically or even physically? Um, <laughs> I've not got the I guess the yeah the the stripes on my blazer like um dmt researcher dick khan i'm very very limited within my own experience um but the only yeah the only experience i i, I can talk of which kind of justified the research that i was doing it was kind of um if you're going to talk the talk walk the walk you know <laughs> kind of see venture and see what this 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 is all about um if anything i was spiraling into a world of depression um with my spinal injury um but yeah after i guess i don't i don't know how to put this into context which is again how i salute dick on his, his own writings um yeah i'm just left in a world of contemplation wondering what the what the proverbial bigger picture is um as i say after seeing indescribable matter appear before <laughs> before my eyes in an empty room um i'm still sitting here now in a i guess um a semi-cluttered um balcony and i'm still wondering <laughs> what's actually in the room um possibly with me <laughs> although that sound might sound a little bit crazy to an outsider that's never i guess um yeah in, introduced any of these psychiatric substances into their um brain mechanics but when you do actually i guess peer beyond the veil there's um <laughs> Yeah, there's 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 many levels of reality waiting to be um, to be witnessed, um, and, and I think that has certainly helped me um, emotionally more than physically um, get me through what's going on here. It's uh, a bit of a contradiction for me personally because there's two paths you can take in life when it comes to the deep mysteries, and a common one is that you are silent and you keep it to yourself. And you contemplate it, but you keep it silent, like, you know, like a guru. Or uh, you don't. And uh, with the podcast, of course, I'm exposing my own experiences. And like Dick Hahn writes books, and you've all written books. Uh, But uh, do you think that, I mean, it's... When you feel alone doing these things, it's nice to read other people's experiences. But... uh, if we rewind the clock back a thousand years in those days, maybe it was more uh, you keep it to yourself. What do you think? I, uh, If I can just quickly say, I, I think if the great Egyptian library of Alexandria had not been burnt down three times as it was, we'd probably have a, a lot more knowledge about this kind of thing. And you could even go on to say that, you know, the works of, of Rick and PD and, and myself and a whole host of others, and ones that will come along and continue to write. It's almost like you're restocking the shelves of that great Egyptian library by these investigations, these analyses into alternative realities, occult realities. You know, you know, it, 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 it's an open field. And um, yeah, I, th- I think that's what's at play. You know, it's, it's restocking that great library of world knowledge with investigations into occult realities. 
Regardless of the literature actually being lost, which is why I think the um, everything that I, I guess I talk about in my book, that's the stuff that seems to be written in stone, the symbology, the the metaphoric allegories. Um, that's what that's what stands the, the the test of time, if you know what I mean. Um, it can't be fudged. It can't be um, it can't be rescribed, if you know what I mean. Um, it's literally these things are written in stone. And the symbology it's the same whether you're talking about Mesoamerican, whether you're talking about Mesopotamia, whether you're talking about the Indus Valley um, or even the Far East. You know, um, they're all talking about the same. They're all on the same hymn sheet, and it seems. From my perspective, like everyone's holding, I guess, a proverbial piece of the bigger picture of this puzzle. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it, I think it's time that we actually started to to put the picture together uh, and actually discuss it and not actually be afraid of it. You know, we kind of clap ourselves on our back with our own ingenuity today um, in the 21st century saying, um, <laughs> yeah, like how how technologically astute we are, but, but maybe we're not the, the greatest after all. Not so much um, technologically, but spiritually. Um, I think that someone somewhere a long time ago um, had this stuff down to a T, um, which is why I think it's been, um, yeah, chiseled into stone and mythology um, for a scientifically adept society um, like we're living in today to actually unravel and say, Do you know what? Um, instead of these flying gods or gods in trees and flying horses, X, Y, Z and angels. Uh, yeah, there's there's something more profound with regards to the human experience that's actually been saved for us to, um, yeah, to, 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 I guess, to enjoy, you know, <laughs> it's um, it's not with a nine to five um, mundane do as you're told. You know, there's there's a whole world of experience, I guess, um, locked away. And I think that DMT is is probably going to prove catalyst to actually opening up them 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 dormant doorways within the the, the proverbial mind's eye. I find that mundane labor or work is easier when you have psychedelics in your life because it doesn't really bother you as much. At least that's from my experience. But PD, do you have anything to say about what we've been saying so far? Well, I actually had a question for for you guys both of you speak about these experiences though as though it's kind of a jamesonian approach to it almost that uh, you know dmt is sort of unlocking uh, real realities you do use the word realities so actual spaces um, where these uh, entities exist i'm not saying they do or don't i'm just curious um what do you think of the jungian uh, application the Jungian model that says uh, do you think it's less useful or more useful or, or how do you think it compares um, with this Jamesonian idea that we're actually entering or or infringing upon you know real territories um, I'm not as I'd like to be as, as well versed as yourself on um, yeah the philosophies of the, the likes of Jung um, but to be fair I'm yeah, I w- I'd be building a rod for my own back. I'd probably trip over my own statements. Um, I think after reading um, Dick's own literature, it might be, um, <laughs> you might get a better answer from himself. And I do apologize for not being able to answer your question. No, that's perfect. Because um, it's, it's a fine point. It's a, it's, a, it's a particular point. Yeah, and I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that. But what I would say is, when I say occult realities, I, I think w- what, from my perspective, what's happening is that uh, 
powerful spiritual agents, entities from a, a hidden realm, whether it's divine or semi-divine, uh, typically uh, emerge in, in my setting, in the terrestrial setting, and impose powerfully upon me. It's not that I'm uh, going into another realm, it's more that they're coming here. I'm not sure that answers your point, and, and as with Rick, I'm probably, as a working-class northern boy, I probably don't have the education to uh, do that. Well, I mean, uh, Jung's most famous works where he talks about uh, uh, alchemy and about uh, the collective unconscious and all that, uh, it's all fine, but uh, his book uh, that I think is the most important or the most interesting in terms of thinking psychedelically is uh, the Red Book, I think it's called. Do you know about that one, PD? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, my wife bought it as a, uh, as a <laughs> birthday present when it first came out. It's a giant, it's almost the size of a doorway. It's a doorway. <laughs> It's a very occult book uh, and and a very spectac- a spectacular read. It's a, it's it's not an uh, an easy read. You really have to dedicate yourself to to it. No, it's really hard to make sense of it unless you kind of have a background in what he's already doing. If you've read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, um, it kind of makes it more navigable. But even so, I mean, what what you're dealing with that is it's like a modern magical grimoire or something. You know, but that that's kind of gets to why I was asking that question because um, I find with myself I have to walk a tightrope between this. Uh, um, it, it, similar to I don't know if you've read Eric Davis's new book High Weirdness, but he he mentions this um, adopting this as if framework uh, when navigating these realities. Uh, so it, as if to say it doesn't matter if it's real or not. Uh, act as if it's real if you get results Um, and i kind of like that you know because i'm a a skeptic naturally but i also um, like the open-ended approach to say you know we really don't don't know we can't know at this point Um, but the fact is you do certain things like alistair curley said you do certain things and you get certain results i have this uh, creed that i came up with for myself and i that goes uh, the illusion is real. I like that. <laughs> That's a t-shirt waiting. <laughs> the good thing with DMT is it doesn't matter if you're uh, been a scholar for 50 years or if you haven't done anything intellectual at all. It's like death. Like if, if you smoke a big dose, you are all treated equally in a sense. I mean, you don't need any pre-knowledge to to uh, ex- to um, have a very good experience on DMT. It's on the philosophical and the intellectualizing is more when you're thinking about it uh, afterwards, I imagine. So, Khan, uh, you uh, maybe don't uh, want to talk about it, but uh, let me know. But I was interested in in uh, the fact that you managed to make it liquid. Yeah, so I had um, a good friend over in the um, USA who, um, via a secure encrypted app, held my hand, so to speak, and walked me through the process of uh, making sterile um, injectable uh, DMT in solution. So when I say injectable, I mean intramuscularly, not intravenously. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I made, produced DMT, 
changed that into DMT fumarate and then hygienically got that into sterile water for solution. And I have, I've tried, uh, I've tried intramuscular as a, a route of administration and, uh, yeah, wow. I mean, that's, that's something I will continue to pursue in my research and, and future literary endeavors. Last time I, I tried it, you know, I, I did try it in a darkened room. I, I came, came home from my work. It was at a late shift. So I was home at 2.30 a.m. I injected. I don't recall what dose, but it was the biggest dose that I, I, I'd had out of the three. And it was intense. It was, you know, it was uh, the entity experience, entity interacting with me was, was without a doubt, but there were no no visions. And I, I at one point I questioned, almost questioned the entity, why are there no visions? The room went this shade of red throughout, just momentarily, just, just for like several seconds, and then just went and the entity kept interacting with me. And that was a powerful experience, you know. Sometimes you have to get a little bit freaky, a little bit insane, stay sane. It was an intense experience. And over over several hours, it wasn't, it's not like smoked, you know, it's... Uh, I was wide until about seven seven thirty a.m. So how long? Uh, from about two thirty until about seven thirty a.m. So I noted wow. a decline a decline from about five five thirty p.m. But at seven thirty p.m. when I should have been fast asleep, I was, I was up in bed and I was like still wide awake listening to the birds singing. Mm. Fascinating. Yeah, it's something I will I will continue to pursue, but obviously. I benefit from the fact that somebody uh, uh, explained and showed me how to prepare that hygienically. Obviously, sticking a needle into your butt with um, a DMT in, in sterile solution, you've got to know where you're sticking it, and you've got to know, you know you've got to follow procedure, hygienic procedure. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I think the the, the biggest take that um, that comes to mind with regards to your own work, um, Dick, was if you'd like to maybe elaborate on this before I butcher, <laughs> yeah, butcher your own experiments and what you're saying about them. But I'd suffered and still do. I guess I don't I don't consider it suffering anymore. Um, yeah, after my my DMT um, experiences and the, the the amping up of what the the Western world calls tinnitus. Um, but with regards to that that inner sound um, amping up and breaking open, I guess the doorway to yeah to whatever this stuff is actually doing, um, real or unreal. Um, I think that the the connection with tinnitus and um, correct me if I'm wrong, how you're talking about the the particular vibration of the pineal for for within the yeah the anatomical centre of one's one's brain. Um, I think that that was a fascinating point, uh, one which I. I, I, I guess I use to my benefit now to a certain extent um, as opposed to trying to sort of tuck this 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 really annoying and excruciating sound away that I could never pinpoint where it was coming from inside or outside of my head. Um, I do notice now that when that does amp up naturally on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I find myself tripping over ironic, um, I guess, synchronicities or synchronicities. Um, it's almost as if... <laughs> Yeah, it's almost as if the, that's actually vibrating and ele elevating somewhat as if, uh, I guess, a, a psycho-spiritual something or someone, something else is saying, look, pay attention. Um, and at the moment, it seems to be nine times out of ten when that's actually amping up naturally. Um, yeah, I'm actually picking up on something that I may have missed, um, 
yeah, prior to, to, to the tinnitus actually amping up. But I think, yeah, how you've discussed it in your book, it certainly helped me in my everyday life. That's good to hear. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I've come to call it spiritual tinnitus. That's obviously, you know, tinnitus is a, it's a genuine medical condition. Some some industries where people are exposed to loud sounds, noises, it, it, it can manifest through that way. But personally speaking, it's something that I've had ever since I, I, I started forming memories. It's something I've always, always had and it was and have now. But it was, you know, when I first smoked DMT and, and that sound, which had been such a big part of my early childhood, when it, it turned up like somebody was turning the volume knob on that, I was just so fascinated. I mean, no, that no. just really enamored me to to what DMT was. And I had no idea at that, that time. And even now, I, I still don't think I've scratched the surface. It's such a deep mystery. But yes, that its effect on my... Uh, psycho-spiritual constitution, that audible increase around my pineal region, absolutely fascinating. It's interesting that, that, um, that, that you mentioned um, memories um, instigating um, this, this, this tinnitus. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, but the latest studies are now talking about the hippocampus, which is obviously responsible for, for memory. Um, it's also um, let's say flooded with uh with yeah with endogenous dmt which yeah um was unthinkable um even sort of two or three years ago you know um yeah we know it's in the eyes we know it's in the lungs the cerebral spinal fluid um and possibly like they're saying with the the, the rats and experiments at the moment the human pineal um but yeah i think there's I think there's some thoughts to be connected again with ancient mythologies talking about uh, memory and the hippocampus. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Oh, well, the research is fascinating, but from a practical point of view with, with psychedelics, I found DMT, but more so um, salvia, enhanced salvia leaf, smoked. That has just brought to the forefront of my mind amazing memories from my childhood long forgotten memories and, and not just memories but the actual the the, the context of the sense you know like the feel of something the sound of something there's such almost tangible memories and and salvia in particular seems really really powerful for just bringing to the forefront of your conscious mind long forgotten memories and uh, i don't know the neuro or neuro neuromechanics of that but yeah, I mean, clearly, it, these psychoactive substances are able to dredge up long-forgotten memories and, and put them back in your conscious mind. And uh, wow, yeah, amazing. Well, the reason I mention it is I don't know how familiar you are with, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the work of Bill Donahue, where he talks about the the hippocampus um, being a an basically an ancient analogy or an anagram. For um, yeah, Pegasus is basically the the hippocampus. Um, and yeah, the hippocampus, as we know, translates roughly um, as a seahorse. And Pegasus was the the, the favourite, the most favoured seahorse of Poseidon, the sea god. Um, and through mythology, it also says that um, yeah, Pegasus activated the the fountain of the Muses um, on Mount Helicon. Um, which again i find kind of ironic where muse means to, to to meditate and he also talks about how meditation excuse me um is how to access um yeah these other spiritual 
human realms of, of existence, um, I guess. But with regards to, um, yeah, activating, I guess, this kundalini spiral that people also talk about, um, which can be a very, very easily disregarded. Um, but I find, yeah, I find Bill Donahue's work extremely revealing when we find out even that all this was meant to have taken place on Mount Helicon. Um, and Helicon in itself uh, means spiral, just like the, the helix or the, the Kundalini moving up the spine to ignite the pineal. That's awesome work, Rick. I, I, I love your work, man. You know that I like that. I, I'm, I'm not as scholastic as yourself, but I really like um, what you're doing there. I've probably completely butchered his work there. I mean, it's going to be coming. <laughs> I'm hoping to, to kind of pigeonhole some of this in some chapters in my next work. Um, but I think that the the mythology, the the biblical um, writings with regards to these, again, winged gods and gods on um, yeah winged horses throwing thunderbolts, I think it's quite, um, I'm not here to offend, but I think it's almost hilarious. You know, it's, um, I think children, even question this <laughs> but there's a there's there's, there's there's clearly a deeper meaning um to to what's actually been transposed here um for i guess a, a scientifically adept society like ourselves to, to maybe pick the bones out and actually say Do you know what yeah maybe horses don't fly but <laughs> there's some there's some substance here with regards to the biomechanics of the human brain mm-hmm. talking about future works i know i know pd's got a, a book pending and you know, I feel honoured that, you know, PD shared um, potentially some of his draft chapters with me, you know, and I've been sworn to secrecy. And, you know, I'm really excited about what PD is also doing. And I don't know, I, I feel I'm taking over from you, Alex, here now, forgive me. But PD, are you able to, you know, tell us a bit more about what you're planning to publish? Oh, sure. Um, the forthcoming book, um, which the uh, slowly coming about is um, is on the presence of uh, references in Western alchemy to uh, wh- what I believe are entheogenic um, coprophilic fungi psychedelic mushrooms that grow from from feces essentially um, I've amassed just a crazy amount of references um, to the like I said, alchemy being a DIY process, these are this faction, um, their solution in the dunghill is how it's usually referenced as dunghill. But um, I've uh, that's the basic premise. But I've found some of the references that are most mind-boggling. Are for example, uh, I found one reference. Actually, I didn't find it. It was uh, given to me by uh, Clark Heinrich, who wrote magic mushrooms and religion and alchemy it says that uh, uh, and I'm not quoting here but it says that the uh, the stone of the philosophers blooms upon the dunghill and that it resembles the moon and that if they say that the moon is blue then it must be true is what it says and he goes on to say that it like the moon the stone is white in its undisturbed state but when molested it turns blue um, so just spot on descriptions of uh, mushrooms and um, and alchemical literature. So yeah, that's the the focus of uh, of the book. And I've got a couple of chapters that are being published. The first one is coming out in uh, ethnomycological studies, which is um, John W. Allen, the amateur mycologist. Uh, it's coming out in his journal. 
and uh, issue 10. And then I've got a paper on um, Solomon Trismosin's uh, Splendor Solis, which has clear uh, fungus, fungal motifs um, in certain of the plates. And it's coming out in uh, The Invisible College, which was which is uh, Willem Lude's uh, publication. Uh, it's irregular. I don't think it's quarterly, but uh, still pretty regular. In alchemy, they often mention the first matter, the prima materia that you begin with as feces. In this, in this case, it w- it would be the prima materia. It change, like I said, it changes with each system. Uh, like if there's, a, for example, if you look at Michael Meyer, um, there's a, a reference, um, which I, I published it in a private paper, but uh, Chris Bennett ended up quoting it in his Libra 420. Um, but where he basically cannabis, you know, he says that uh, that it's it's green, it has yellow gold hairs on the line, it encases the seeds within itself, and and uh, that from this can be prepared uh, a stone. Um, he describes it at one point as, as sticky, which sounds to me like hashish resin. So it, you know, it's different for everyone. You'll also encounter, like you said. Paracelsus, um, there's some evidence that he thought opium might have been the solution to the stone at one point, though it looks like he abandoned that. Um, and Paracelsus, speaking of which, is a pretty significant in this research as well because it's his technique, called the primum ends technique, um, which is how alchemists in the early days would have extracted DMT without having access to the caustic um, compounds and uh, solutions um, that we use today. So, if you look up his primum ends, it's basically how we produce um, DMT now when we use naphtha. Wow. The reason I like Paracelsus a lot is because um, he's the only alchemist that had any that we know any connection with indigenous culture and indigenous culture has always been psychedelic culture uh, all over the world. There are exceptions, of course, but he, he uh, traveled so much and he met the Tartars and, but it's all hearsay, but he was traveling in that region and um, met uh, the Tartar people that came up from the North. But I mean, there's no evidence, but it's the, he's the only alchemist that even mentions any indigenous cultures, you know. And there may even be an example of him mentioning um, uh, a psilocybin mushroom uh, uh, and an agaric mushroom. If you look at Rabelais, Francois Rabelais, who wrote uh, Pantagruel, um, Pantagruelion, he, uh, Chris Bennett mentions this, but he talks about um, an agaric mushroom in relation to Paracelsus. And then Paracelsus collected works published by Arthur Edward Waite, his alchemical works. There's a reference where he says something about bulbaton, but he doesn't give any description of what that is. And when he says bulbaton, he says he says it in relation to quote super celestial things. And then footnote given by Waite is what's incredibly peculiar because it says bulbaton means both a mushroom and the excrement of oxen, but Paracelsus's use of the term might not shed any light, or, or, or you, this 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 description might not shed any light on Paracelsus's use of the term. So very weird 
Um, more so on Waite's part than than Paracelsus's, but but yeah, he was clearly hip to um, to a lot of this. I think you've just postponed the release of my new book, PD. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> no, psilocybin features quite heavily, heavily. Um, yeah, in the ongoing continuation of my original hypothesis, um, something which I shed more light on at a later date. But um, yeah, fascinating research, and thank you for it. Yeah, it's uh, and you know, think you think about psilocybin chemically is for phosphoryloxy and in dimethyltryptamine, so you know definitely similar similar territory you're getting into oh it's, it's it's strikingly similar with regards to what's going on up in the night sky with the cosmos as well as, as i say with regards to my original hypothesis um whereby i'm saying that yeah osiris may be likened to the 2d structure or molecular structure of the chemical compound dmt um yeah i'm i'm, I'm elaborating on the original hypothesis but um yeah, it's certainly not the the only psychoactive substance in the sky um, with regards to yeah mythological connotations and a 2D structure, um, which kind of holds your hand through the mythology as well, uh, which I'm looking forward to um, publishing in the in the near future. But I think you might have just delayed that a little bit. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll keep an eye out. Let me know when it when it comes out. I'd love a copy. Oh, I'll be certain. You don't worry about that. <laughs> right on. Thank you. So uh, let's uh, take a round and everybody can uh, talk about uh, where you can get your books or if you have websites and that kind of thing. You can start with PD. Uh, Sure. Um, We're about to go into the second edition. It's been postponed, uh, but it should be out any day. Uh, The first edition is still available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Preferably, if you're going to buy a copy, get it from my publisher, The Laudable Pursuit. Um, uh, I, I can't remember the exact web address offhead, but you should be able to find it, The Laudable Pursuit, and uh, this, the title of my book being Alchemically Stoned. Um, and uh, yeah, the second book, it's going to be at least, I don't know, six months before I can get it rolling, but you'll be the first to know when it happens. And uh, Decon? Yeah, so I'm I'm self-published, so my book is available on uh, Amazon. When I say <clears throat> my book, DMT and My Cult Mind 2, is my most recent publication. Um, because I'm self-published and I don't have an editor, I, I found that my writing in the second book is, is much, uh, much improved on the first book. So I've actually retired the first book, DMT and My Cult Mind, and I will... I've revised that into a light version, uh, so the writing mirrors that in DMT of my occult mind too. So yeah, it's available via Amazon or I'm on social media. It's usually DMT researcher or DMT dot researcher or DMT underscore researcher. If you want a copy signed, whatever, hit me up. I you know I do send them out and I'd be delighted to uh, to do that. Yeah, RM. Almost the same as the above. To be fair, um, uh, yeah the spirit in the sky ancient cosmological gods and where we find them is available on um, all amazon outlets um as far as i'm aware <laughs> excuse me self-published again um the second book excuse me third book um yeah delayed publication due to becoming a father um love your baby your this is for you um 
yeah, it's as I said, it's going to be slightly delayed. Um, I'm having too much fun being a dad at the moment. But you can get, um, as I said, Spirit in the Sky on available on Amazon, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, RNVU, very easy to find. Um, not the easiest name, V W O G H T. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend the other two gentlemen's books as well. Um, get your feet wet, guys. Um, yeah, just, just, just. Just enjoy them. It's um, yeah. There's a, there's a whole world of you know, a whole new world out there waiting to be discovered. Um, and these guys are ticking the boxes um, at the moment. So yeah, congratulations, guys. Thank you. Congratulations I'm to you, and Thank you. <laughs> well, uh, thank you a lot for taking the time. It's been interesting to do what is called a tetralogue, which is four people speaking about. Uh, in a sense, complicated topics, but thank you for uh, making it go smoothly. That was fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, everyone. Stay well, my friends. It's been a pleasure. We'll do this again. You are humbly invited to support this podcast, and by doing so, keeping it free from corporate influence. Do you want to listen to alchemists, magicians, shamans and psychonauts? Or do you want to listen to humans possessed by dark and demonic forces that intends to lure you into their web of consumerism? I'm sure you choose the former, so please support the podcast. Join us at the round table of the divine mystery as an intergalactic spirit warrior and ally to the glorious art of alchemy. Go to Patreon dot com forward slash natural born alchemist if you want to become a patron and for only a couple of bucks a month you will be able to access additional content deleted episodes and other exclusive material as well and be able to listen to episodes way before they are released and if you don't want to do this that's fine too you are loved nonetheless thank you Here is a little mix I did of my favorite NoFX song called The Decline from the one song album The Decline. I took an acoustic cover version by Sam Wartenby, a trumpet solo by Lucas Owen and the original and mixed it all together. Freedom is in the mind.
Thank mm-hmm. you. 